Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. So glad you could join us on this Labor Day weekend. Uh, please say hello in the chat, and um, you may want to check that it's set on everyone so that all of us uh, know that you're here. Um, if you are visiting from one of our sibling ethical societies or UU congregations, feel free to mention that as well. Uh, we will be starting in a few moments. In the meantime, you might want to make sure you have with you your uh, comfort food, your beverage of choice, your security blanket, anything else that you want to have with you for our time together. Good morning, Robin. Glad to have you with us, as always. Good morning, Adam. Hello. Who else do we have here? Good morning, uh, D. Blarkham. I'm not sure what the D stands for. I probably should know. My apologies. Very bad with names. Uh, good morning, Donna. Good morning, Lynn. Good thing you're here since you're talking today. Oh, Bonnie. Okay. Hi, Bonnie. Good morning, Adam. Morning, Vincent. I wonder how many people are taking advantage of the long weekend to do a little traveling. I realize that uh, people's desire to get out might be a little intense by this point in the last 18 months. But um, anyway, if you're here with us, we're delighted to have you. Good morning, Shirley. Good morning, Trang. Ah, greetings from the beach, but socially distant, of course. I won't ask whether you're wearing a mask, Trang. Hopefully not, you don't have to do that since it's outdoors and probably pretty breezy at the beach. Let's see, I've got my beverage of choice, AKA water. Um, oh, thank you, Jeff. He's congratulating me on my appearance in the Style Invitational this week. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will not go into the uh, significance of the word hentai, but if you uh, are a fan of the Style Invitational humor contest, uh, you can look that up uh, or you, know, you can just Google the term. But anyway, Probably not uh, what we want to be talking about this morning here at West. Good morning, Laura Tyler. Glad to have you with us. Morning, Bill, new empty nester. Wow, that's a big change. Um, I hope the house isn't too quiet for you, Bill. I think we'll be starting in just a moment here. I see that it is past uh, 11.30, a few minutes past. Excuse me, 10.30. Boy, am I in the wrong time zone. Yes, Laura T is adding her congratulations to Bill. Good work, sir. Yeah, <laughs> Joe London says, hi, everyone. And wow, Bill, time flies. Yes, <clears throat> the uh, line that we learned when we became parents was, the years when my children were small went by quickly. The days went by slowly. And that was often the case for us. All right, I think we'll get started. Um, oh, one thing I forgot to mention is I was encouraging people to uh, get whatever they wanted to have available. Uh, you might want to have a candle uh, for our candle lighting. And if uh, you're going to do that, <laughs> time flies. I can't. They're too fast. Oh, 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 okay. Yes, you can't time the flies. Got it. Got it, Jeff. Good morning, Judy. Okay. Um, so let's get started. Our opening words this morning are from Florence Kaplow. In recognition of Labor Day, we pause to honor all work, including the work of our hands and our backs, in gratitude for all the labors that support the world, and for all those who boldly continue the work of justice, equity, and peace. We begin today's platform with music from Soul Songs. 
Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walking boots, climb the fence, books and pens, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Walk with me, Susie Lee, through the park and by the tree. We will rest upon the ground and look at all the bugs we found. Safely walk to school without a sound. Safely walk to school without a sound. Here we are, no one else. We walk to school all by ourselves. There's dirt on our uniforms from chasing all the ants and worms. We clean up and now it's time to learn. We clean up and now it's time to learn Numbers, letters, learn to spell Nouns and books and show and tell Plague time we will throw the ball Back to class, through the hall Teacher marks our height against the wall Teacher marks our height against the wall We don't notice any time pass We don't notice anything We sit side by side in every class Teacher thinks that I sound funny But she likes the way you sing Tonight I'll dream while in my bed When silly thoughts go through my head About the bugs and alphabet And when I wake tomorrow I'll bet that you and I Together again. And I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Yes, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes. No, oh, that was just delightful. What a great way to start the platform. <laughs> Good morning again. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. My name is Perry Biter. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm the officiant this morning. Visitors from near and far, we especially welcome you. We hope that you'll say hello in the chat and that you might send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas. His address is M-A-C-E-O-T at ethicalsociety.org. You can also fill out a connection form. Maceo will put that link in the chat. And we hope that you'll join us after this platform service at virtual coffee hour for a chance to say hello. Our chat will stay open through much of the platform service, closing for the address itself and then reopening. If you don't wanna see the chat, this is a good time to minimize it. Closed captioning is also available. You can turn that on or off as you prefer. Each week, we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values. If you're interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc slash readSOP. It's a wonderful way to introduce yourself or to reconnect with uh, others in the congregation. Um, if you haven't done that for a while, I highly recommend it. But in the absence of another reader, officiants like myself are happy to share these words. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you have a candle at home, I invite you to light it now, and I invite everyone to join with me in the candle lighting words. 
May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Thanks, Perry. Good morning. My name is Lynn Cox. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm the interim leader here at the Washington Ethical Society. This is a story from the 19th century in the United States. How much we have heard about this story before today or which version of the story we learned might depend on our generation, on our class background, or the commitment of the places where we were educated to honoring the history of labor. Historical events are always subject to interpretation. And I believe this story is true. Child labor was endemic in the 18th and 19th century. Factory owners and mining companies liked employing children because they didn't fight back against brutal physical punishment and other employee abuse. And because children could squeeze into the tightest and deadliest places in the mines and in the machinery. Workplace injuries and even deaths of children were extremely common. And when a laborer of any age, including a child was injured, they had no right to medical care or compensation and their wages were stopped immediately. There were few rules about workplace safety and what rules existed seemed to be unenforceable. For instance, employment of children under the 12 years of age became illegal in the 1840s. But by 1900, the textile industry alone employed more than 80,000 children. Conditions were bad everywhere and they reached a peak in the state of Pennsylvania. Historian Ken Finkel of Temple University picks it up from here on the Philly History blog. As early as 1890, Florence Kelly noted that child labor in Pennsylvania flourished almost unchecked. And Jane Addams pointed to Pennsylvania in 1905, noting there were more children employed in manufacturing industries in the state than in all the cotton states of the South. The high point of publicity on the issue, writes Walter Licht, came in 1906 when more than 25,000 Philadelphians crowded into the city's horticultural hall to see an industrial exhibit which dramatized with shocking photographs the use and state of child labor in, in Pennsylvania industry. Advocacy organizations were embarrassing Philadelphia, the city promoting itself as the workshop of the world with the equally well-earned title, the greatest child employing city. But it took a special effort to move the issue of child labor to the forefront ahead of the other pressing concerns. In April of 1903, wrote Philip Scranton, all the unions and the textile industries of Philadelphia met in convention at the Kensington Labor Lyceum and agreed they would strike for better pay and a reduction from a 60 hour to a 55 hour work week. Within a few months, more than 90,000 textile workers had walked off the job. 25% of the striking workforce was less than 15 years of age. Enter Mary Harris, AKA Mother Jones, who once claimed, I'm not a humanitarian, I'm a hellraiser. Knowing full well that at least 10,000 of the textile strikers were children, Jones imagined the power of a spectacle, an army of children in protest, and she quickly organized one in the center of Philadelphia. A great crowd gathered in the public square in front of the city hall, wrote Mother Jones in her autobiography. I put the little boys with their fingers off and hands crushed and maimed on a platform. I held up their mutilated hands and showed them to the crowd and made the statement that Philadelphia's mansions were built on the broken bones, the quivering hearts and the drooping heads of these children, that their little lives went out to make wealth for others, their little, that neither state nor city officials paid any attention to these wrongs, that they did not care that these children were to be the future citizens of the nation. On July 7th, 1903, Mother Jones and her sign carrying children's army embarked on a 92 mile march of the mill children, departing the physical and spiritual home of organized textile labor in Philadelphia, the Kensington Labor Lyceum. Their destination was the Long Island, New York vacation home of President Theodore Roosevelt. From Ken Finkel's account, we turn now to Thomas Fortuna of the Nonviolent Action Database at Swarthmore who says a little more about the impact of the march. He writes that President Theodore Roosevelt refused to see the delegation from the Children's March and took his son's camping instead, 
prioritizing fresh air and leisure for his own children that the child laborers were denied. Fortuna goes on, despite their failure to meet with the president and pass national legislation regulating child labor, Mother Jones would later acknowledge that the crusade had been successful in drawing the nation's attention to the plight of child workers and launching a nationwide movement against child labor. The next year, 1904, leading Americans such as former President Grover Cleveland, Harvard President Charles Eliot, South Carolina Senator Benjamin Tillman, Columbia Professor Felix Adler, and Hull House founder and future Nobel Prize laureate Jane Addams joined the newly formed National Child Labor Committee to campaign for reform. By 1915, Pennsylvania enacted a new child labor law setting the minimum age at 14. And the year after, the first federal child labor law was enacted prohibiting the movement of goods across state lines if child labor laws were violated, though that law was later declared unconstitutional by the courts. And I will close this story with a quote from the late musician, historian, and labor activist, Utah Phillips. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mines. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. As we enter into the centering time of our platform, let's reflect on the possibilities we might embrace for the future. Even when the situation is discouraging, people organized for love and justice may still form relationships to support each other and accomplish goals in the long term. Thank you, Lynn. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of the women and families in Texas affected by the new bans and restrictions on abortion in that state. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. May it be so. Words for meditation today were written by Christine Robinson. I invite you into a space of quiet and peace to ground yourself by noticing your contact with the earth by way of your chair or the floor or whatever it is that you're resting on. By aligning your posture, by becoming aware of your breathing. Look at your hands. They've been through a lot, these hands. They have strengths, scars, beauty. I invite you to remember that it is your hands that do the work of love in the world. These hands may hold another's hands. These hands may type emails to politicians or sign cards of consolation and congratulation. These hands might patiently teach, quilt works of beauty or write words urging peace. These hands might bathe children, feed elders, nurse the ill, work the earth, organize communities. These hands clasp in meditation, open in release, grasp in solidarity, and clench in righteous anger. These hands are sacred hands, your hands, our hands, a great mystery of flesh and intention, a great potential of embodied love. We continue our meditation in silence and in the music that follows.
Step by step, the longest march can be won, can be won. Many stones can form an arch, singly none, singly none. And by union, what we will can be accomplished still. Drops of water turn a mill, singly none. Singly none. Step, step by step, the longest march can be one, can be one. Many stones to form an arch, singly none, singly none. And by union, what we will can accomplish will. Drops of water turn West Chorus, that was so fabulous. And thank you to interim music coordinator, Leah Morris for making that happen. I set out to write a platform address that traced humanist values and involvement in the history and present of the labor movement. And in my research, I was reminded that for the humanists and ethical culturists and ethical humanists of the late 19th and the first half of the 20th century, this would have gone without saying. And even though the humanist movement has changed and the labor movement has changed, I still see a resonance of values and possibilities to embrace for shared action. Speaking about Labor Day and labor movement is daunting. For one thing, members of our community come from many different perspectives. Among us are union members, economists, workers whose classification means they are denied protection from the National Labor Relations Board, managers, entrepreneurs, and students. It's hard to use words like we and us on this topic because almost any statement about the moral calling and heritage of ethical humanism with regard to labor will probably fail to resonate with someone. So I'll say a little bit about humanism and labor organizing in three phases of development and hope we can continue the action and reflection far into the future. In the story earlier about the March of the Mill Children to advocate for child labor laws, you may have picked up on a few familiar names. We heard about Charles William Eliot, Unitarian educational reformer and president of Harvard University from 1869 to 1909. We heard about Jane Addams, who took the European model of a religious settlement house and made it secular for her work at Hull House in Chicago. And we heard about Felix Adler, the National Child Labor Committee was able to shape the attention and motivation for change lifted up by the striking workers and Mother Jones and turn that energy into political advocacy. Building relationships, prioritizing the voices of those most impacted, street action and strategic political pressure were all necessary to bring change. Humanism and ethical culture were already movements in progress in 1903. We can see the influence of these organizations and actions in the first Humanist Manifesto 30 years later in 1933. Related to the labor movement, two of the original manifesto's 15 points seem especially relevant. 14th, the humanists are firmly convinced that existing acquisitive and profit-motivated society has shown itself to be inadequate and that a radical change in methods, controls, and motives must be instituted. A socialized and cooperative economic order must be established to the end that the equitable distribution of the means of life be possible. The goal of humanism is a free and universal society in which people voluntarily and intelligently cooperate for the common good. Humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. Fifteenth and last, we assert that humanism will A, affirm life rather than deny it, 
B, seek to elicit the possibilities of life, not flee from them. And C, endeavor to establish the conditions of a satisfactory life for all, not merely for the few. By this positive morale and intention, humanism will be guided. And from this perspective and alignment, the techniques and efforts of humanism will flow. So we see in this early 20th century declaration a commitment to several ideas commonly held among humanist thinkers at the time. All people deserve a shared life in a shared world. The least privileged workers deserve part of the abundance they create. Economics must be cooperative if humans are to fulfill our purpose. These ideas built a bridge between humanism and the labor movement during this formative period. Humanists did and do support education, resting hopes for an improved society on rational decision-making rather than wishful thinking or conformity, which in turn relies on widely available quality schooling. Some, so some of the intellectual humanists of the early 20th century might have been called to action on child labor because children being in school was central to their project for social change. But it wasn't just that. Humanists of the day felt that wealth should be shared. The point of humanist institu human institutions was the improvement of human life. Writing and theorizing and advocating for labor rights was one way of moving toward that goal. And it's possible that the big thinkers of early, early 20th century humanism, as they sought to show a rational philosophy built on first principles, explained their support of labor in complicated terms, lots of words. Maybe they felt they needed to match the wordy rationalizations of those who prioritized profit and wanted to limit government regulations. Mother Jones, who identified as a hellraiser rather than a humanitarian or even a humanist, just thought it was wrong to exploit people, especially children. While the contributions of humanists made a difference in the early 20th century labor movement, we should remember that whatever gains were made required the attention and the energy of a wide variety of people, most importantly, the workers themselves. So let's make sure to give credit where it's due. Moving into the middle of the 20th century, the labor movement began a reckoning with racism that continues to this day. Many of the unions were openly discriminatory. Access to unions was one of the points where white workers failed in compassion and in solidarity with African-American and Asian-American workers in the 19th century and up through at least the middle of the 20th century. You may remember the story of building Wes's home on 16th Street and how the society had to choose between a racially integrated workforce and a union workforce for the building project. Despite the threat of picketing, West chose integration. Decisions like these helped pressure the unions into change. At that point, there were a number of factors giving anti-union forces more ammunition. Improvements in transportation and the end of the Second World War saw the beginnings of globalization. Industries were free to find places where labor was most easily exploited without regard to living wages or safe working conditions. Meanwhile, the American labor movement was becoming more racially diverse. And this meant that racist ideas about who really deserves living wages, stable housing, access to luxuries like dental care could be turned against working class people. Deregulation of industries like trucking and the growing acceptability of practices like threatening union sympathizers with dismissal meant that the power of unions and hence the labor conditions and economic mobility of working class people took a downturn beginning in the middle of the 20th century. The last major piece of federal legislation aiding unions and their organizing efforts passed in 1935. But that doesn't mean organized labor was powerless. They began to successfully advise federal agencies, beginning with new standards in the Longshoremen's and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act in 1960. Federal attention to workplace safety began to increase. Backlash from industry set back the progress on making more uniform safety rules on exposure to cancer-causing chemicals, but the idea was gaining momentum that the United States government, not just each individual state, could set and enforce safety standards. In 1970, the Occupational Safety and Health Act was signed into law. 
labor was by no means the only social issue on the minds of those who convened to write the second Humanist Manifesto in 1973. The urgency of addressing racism, war, and ecological devastation were also part of the mix at that time. This was the document that former West leader Ed Erickson worked on, as well as many other clergy from both the ethical culture movement and the Unitarian Universalist movement. Even though they had a lot to think about, the writers of the Second Humanist Manifesto did not entirely forget workers. They called for participatory democracy in all kinds of settings, including the workplace. The manifesto also said that economic systems should be evaluated by whether or not they increase economic well-being for all individuals in groups, minimize poverty and hardship, increase the sum of human satisfaction, and enhance the quality of life. The second humanist manifesto shared with the first one the goal of well-being for all, but was less directive about the methods than the first humanist manifesto which rejected acquisitive and profit-motivated society and called for socialized and cooperative economic order. The second manifesto did make statements about a number of specific issues, medical aid and dying, access to birth control and abortion, the availability of divorce, preventing nuclear disasters, and ending discrimination based on race, religion, sex, age, or national origin but it didn't provide a unified theory of social change to achieve those goals. The Second Manifesto explicitly did not choose between systems they identified as communism, capitalism, socialism, conservatism, liberalism, and radicalism. And maybe that's reflective of the complexities of the political realities of the time. Creating the Occupational Safety and Health Administration was a complex, messy business that involved deep compromises. Organizing labor was a different project when capital could move freely across borders, but people couldn't. The Second Humanist Manifesto said that what you call your philosophy of economics is less important than the outcome of reducing poverty, increasing opportunity, and offering education for all worldwide. The authors warned against narrow allegiances. But we do need allegiances, right? At the same time, it is our relationships that keep us connected to our values. Perhaps the key is in holding our loved ones and allies close, keeping our allegiances, but letting go of dehumanizing ideas about those who are more distant, letting go of the narrowness. The turn of the 21st century brought more recognition than ever of the way small systems matter in forming big systems, particularly when the goal is resisting and dismantling big systems of oppression and exploitation. The 1999 Seattle protests surrounding the World Trade Organization Ministerial Conference saw alliances between groups and movements that had not worked together before. We heard about Teamsters and Turtles, union organizers working closely with environmental activists, putting aside different organizational cultures and narrow goals to show up for each other. The protests brought concerns about globalization into more common parlance and increased awareness of the need for labor protection and environmental protections and trade agreements. Make human connections, let go of dehumanization. And this was the world that the third Humanist Manifesto was brought into in 2003. Where the second manifesto made some specific policy statements, the third manifesto leans more toward core principles and memorable language. Summary statements include ethical values are derived from human need and interest as tested by experience, and working to benefit society maximizes individual happiness. Based on these statements, one can make an argument for involvement in labor organizing or social justice activism to improve the material conditions of the largest number of people. But the third manifesto really needs the us as the participants of a movement to bring our actions out into the open to flesh out the principles it contains. Our collective actions speak louder than carefully crafted statements, and they always have. One of the summary statements in the third manifesto that might not seem relevant to labor on the surface is I think actually a key to effective action. Humans are social by nature and find meaning in relationships. The expanded statement makes it clear that positive relationships move us toward hope of attaining peace, justice, and opportunity for all. 
make human connections, let go of dehumanization, build relationships with people who share a vision of peace, justice, and opportunity. Life is about more than survival. As people who want everyone to make the most of this life, since we're not counting on another life after this one, we weave joy and beauty and awe into our relationships with each other and with the planet. This is a compelling argument for an economic system that shares material prosperity, a compelling argument for regarding labor with respect and for bringing the power of human beings together against the forces of exploitation. It is also a methodology. We achieve great things in relationship. Having just the right words to say after each disaster or each act of violence or failure of government is only valuable to the extent that our words, as well as our actions, help us build relationships with real people and real communities on the path to making things better. Real relationships keep us accountable to the commitments we make to each other and to the values we share. Resist dehumanization by forming relationships with people in coalitions across different communities and issues. And this is the kind of ethic that guides the labor organizers I've been in contact with through coalitions like the Poor People's Campaign. When we fight for 15 in a union, we know that's a racial issue, racial justice issue, because of the number of low-wage workers who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. When we fight for one minimum wage, no excluding farm workers and care workers and domestic workers, we know that's an immigration justice issue and a racial justice issue. It was racism and xenophobia that allowed those exclusions to exist in the first place. When we fight for an environment free of carcinogens and pollutants, we know those are workers' rights issues because it was workers who helped bring the danger of close contact with some of those toxic substances to the world's attention. The stories people share, all from different life experiences, draw us closer and motivate us to stick together. And the organizers I admire all know this. They lift up the voices of those most impacted and let them speak about the intersections. They form coalitions and get people to show up for each other. The history of the labor movement is important and we should know about it. That history is woven together with the values and history of the humanist movement. And we would also do well to remember the current activity of the labor movement. Domestic workers who continue to work in dangerous conditions through the pandemic are getting attention for their demands to be included in labor protections. Starbucks workers in New York state are beginning to work towards organizing a union. Nabisco workers, the people who make your chips ahoy are striking right now. There is still a lot going on. Justice and equity are humanist issues. We can trace that through all three humanist manifesto documents working toward a world where all people can enjoy health, safety, beauty, and joy is a humanist project. Ensuring labor rights, fair wages, and worker safety are just some of the concrete actions that grow out of a philosophy honoring the inherent worth and dignity of every person. As we go about this work, let's remember to build relationships, to go slow enough to let in beauty and joy, and to keep the poetic aspirations of our shared values in our hearts. Happy Labor Day. May your work be honored, and may we all be grateful for the ancestors who brought us closer to the world we dream about. May it be so. After some music, we'll have community sharing time when you can write into the chat about what resonated with you today. A framing question might help spark a memory of a personal experience or your direct observation. And if you like, you can focus your sharing on this question. How are you honoring labor this week? As we contemplate, rest, and reflect, let us experience the beauty of the musical response. I'm not a lone wolf and I never was anything I achieve. I achieve it because I am standing on the shoulders of an infinite many seen and unseen i'm not a lone wolf and i never was anything i achieve i achieve it because i am riding on a tidal wave of universal longing i'm dropping the eye 
I'm claiming the we. I'm feeling the everything inside of me. I'm dropping the mind. I'm claiming the us. Cause the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I'm dropping the I. I'm claiming the we. I'm feeling the everything inside of me. I'm dropping the mind. I'm claiming the us. Cause I recognize how connected we are. Every tear that was ever shed, and every prayer that was ever said, and every gesture on every day weaves us into the dancing. This is love's way. Oh, every tear that was ever shed, and every prayer that was ever said, and every step on every day leads us into belonging. This is love's I'm way. I'm dropping the I'm claiming the Wow, that's great. So uh, this is our community response time when we have a chance to add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what resonates in our own lives. Uh, you may consider the framing question, how are you honoring labor this week? Uh, I invite you to share in the Zoom chat or Facebook comments. Um, I see a note from Adam Limehouse, there are coal miners in Alabama who've been on strike for several months. And he supplies a link to an article about that strike. Thank you, Adam. I was reminded of uh, something I learned about in my own family. My father was active for many years in the National Education Association. And back in the, I think it was 1960s at their national convention, uh, I think some, some Southern state, I think it was Mississippi, had uh, brought two separate, racially separate delegations, uh, one of whites and one of blacks. And the uh, rules committee on which my father served said, we're only seating one delegation. So it can either be integrated or it can be the African Americans. You pick. So I think they integrated the uh, delegation. Um, let's see. Sorry, I'm catching up on other people's comments now. Uh, oh, Joe London, I think, is commenting on the music, uh, which she enjoyed. I certainly uh, Second that motion. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, Adam's now providing a link to the strike fund for those uh, coal miners in Alabama. Thank you, Adam. Macio says, I grew up in a Sunday tradition where at some point during Lynn's talk, an old lady would stand up and scream, preach, Passa. <laughs> I guess that's a little harder to do on Zoom. Um, Karen Skofieleka says, though my own life is now far removed from physical labor, this reminds me of my generations of heritage from the coal regions of Pennsylvania. Yeah, we all have uh, ways in which we are benefiting from the uh, hard and often exploited labor of people in various parts of the country. Uh, I was reminded of that recently, uh, learning some more of the history of the uh, construction of the railroads in uh, the Northern US. I'll give the uh, introverts among us another little a chance to think about what they want to say here. 
Peter Bishop has written, it was wonderful to hear the history of the echoes of the concluding principle of utilitarianism throughout humanism, that the best economic system is the one that provides the greatest good to the greatest number. Uh, Carolyn Arnold, Leah's musical contributions are always inspiring, and this week especially. She really did hit the uh, nail on the head or the ball out, of, ball out of the park or whichever metaphor you want to use. Yeah, absolutely. Jill London says, when I was an attorney advisor to the Board of Immigration Appeals, I was the chief and only steward of our union that included both attorneys and secretarial staff. Hmm, interesting. Very cool. All right, well, um, thank you for your comments. Oh, one from Jeff Mehal. I think a good first step is to learn about the successes of the labor movement, for example, the 40-hour work week. Too many people think that such things occur as the result of a management convenience. Um, yes, as uh, Lynn quoted someone saying, uh, I guess it was the uh, musician, what's his name? Um, Utah Phillips. Uh, these things happened because people organized and fought for them. Yep, Utah Phillips. Yep. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, Sarah Gillian, I changed jobs during the pandemic. Oh, but at my old job, I was involved in our union and negotiating return to work plans. I represented admin staff who were often considered separately from more professional staff. It was very rewarding. Cool. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. And Joe Lennon, again, yesterday I joined a small group that sang, among other songs, Solidarity Forever, with several amazing verses. Singing together is a great way of uh, really connecting and uh, building solidarity. Art Sieben says there are two labor-related shows on WHUT-TV today. Pullman, Hotel on Wheels at 1, and Good Work, Masters of the Building Arts at 3 p.m. Thank you, Art. Well, just as we share our perspectives in this community, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at West, we split the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. We appreciate each person's generous giving as they're able. This month, half of the offering is dedicated to the Congregation Action Network, of which Wes is a member. Congregation Action Network CAN is a network of faith communities in Washington, D.C. and the Maryland and Virginia suburbs acting in solidarity to end detention, deportation, profiling, and criminalization of immigrants and demanding and upholding justice, dignity, safety, and family unity. Reverend Alexis von Kassim, who is on the board of CAN, has sent a message to tell us more about their work. Good morning, Washington Ethical Society. My name is Alexis Kasim, and I bring you greetings on behalf of the steering committee of the Congregation Action Network, or CAN for short. The origins of CAN stretch back to the days of the Obama administration, when a group of activists in Washington, DC, got together to keep ICE out of Washington. But it was after the 2016 presidential election when things really picked up. Realizing that there was a crisis in the making for immigrants and people of color throughout our nation, a group of immigrants and allies were determined to stand up against racism and deportations. They formed Sanctuary DMV, an all volunteer group and created a beautiful butterfly logo as a symbol of hope which they got neighbors and local businesses to display all over town. Among Sanctuary DMV's most dedicated members were those whose faith and sense of spirituality informed their commitment to supporting their immigrant neighbors. After some discussions with local faith communities and other service providers, the group decided to invite all congregations in the greater DC region to an initial meeting to plan a way forward. I remember that night very well. 
It was a cold January evening in 2017 when over 250 people representing 90 congregations and civic organizations across DC, Maryland, and Virginia crowded into the fellowship hall at All Souls Unitarian Church downtown. We knew then that this was the start of something special. And so the Congregation Action Network was born. Since that day in 2017, CAN has become a Faith in Action Federation, hired a full-time organizer, and has stood firmly in solidarity with our neighbors, regardless of status, as an expression of our commitment to justice and love. At this point, you may be wondering, so what does that look like exactly? Well, a primary focus for the network is deportation defense. That means pulling out all the stops to keep our neighbors facing deportation from actually being deported. For example, last year, we came in touch with Bin Sar, a caretaker at Glenmont United Methodist Church, who was detained by ICE on church property. Can quickly organized to help secure his release from detention, protection from deportation, and to support his family. Can has accompanied several others like Pinsar at risk of deportation by helping to navigate our confusing court system, apply for stays of removal, and find sanctuary if needed. Through the generous support of partners like Washington Ethical Society, Can is also able to provide people with much needed financial support. As we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic has thrown millions of families into economic despair. Immigrants, most of whom were excluded from the various stimulus packages, were especially vulnerable as frontline workers. Last year, CAN started a COVID-19 emergency fund that went to raise over $150,000 that went to help hundreds of families in our area with rent, food assistance, childcare, and medical expenses. CAN's organizing work has also had a strong impact on public policy and legislation. With the support of several partner organizations, CAN helped secure the passage of the Sanctuary Act from the DC City Council in 2019. The Sanctuary Act bans DC from notifying ICE when someone is being released from local custody and limits ICE agents access inside its jails and facilities. CAN clusters in Northern Virginia and Maryland have organized extensively to keep existing detention centers from expanding and new detention centers from being built in both states. Then this summer, just three months ago, CAN embarked on its largest effort yet, the Fast for Freedom, an effort aimed at ensuring that a pathway to citizenship become part of the jobs and infrastructure package and finally recognize the millions of undocumented people in our nation as part of the American family. Day in and day out for several weeks, immigrant leaders from all over the country came and joined CAN members and allies in a fast from food in effort to draw attention to the injustices of our broken immigration system and to be more mindful of the lives of the undocumented. Several elected officials stopped by to hear the stories of impacted leaders and show their support. Since the end of the fast for freedom, Congress has begun to take the necessary steps to deliver a pathway to citizenship for DACA holders, TPS holders, farm workers, and other essential workers. The budget resolution with a pathway to citizenship passed in the Senate and in the House, which means this is our moment. We now have to maintain the pressure on Congress to keep a pathway to citizenship in the budget reconciliation. Now is the time when your support is more critical than ever. Please join us in building this movement of hope, love, and solidarity 
in defense of the dignity and sacredness of all people. Thank you so much. Thank you for that message, Reverend Kassem. Um, on the slide, you'll see the number to give by text for today's collection. That's 202-335-1885. And you can also make a gift online through the donate button at the West website, ethicalsociety.org. We will now receive your gifts and the gift of music. Apparently, there really is no end to Leah's musical talents. <laughs> Had not heard that kind of thing from her before. Very cool. Um, so I want to call people's attention to a few more uh, chat messages that showed up uh, since we moved on. Uh, apparently, there is an event um, uh, that you can get tickets for, for free that's being held down in Black Lives Matter. It's a showing of the movie uh, Working. Um, and I, I believe it's a movie, maybe they're doing it as a play. Um, and also mute with, there will be music by the DC Labor Chorus. And Lynn has put a link in the chat for that. Well, thank you so much to the many people who helped to create this morning's time together. Interim music coordinator, Leah Morris, and guest musicians, Soul Songs, Eleuthera, and uh, Safi, as well as our own West Chorus. Thanks to membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, slide artists, John and Abby Dakin, and tech host, Sonia Coopers. Thank you to Robin Kravitz for communication support and hosting the virtual coffee hour at the conclusion of this platform. And thank you to those who are leading and supporting our work in the weeks to come. As always, this week has a variety of opportunities for West members and friends to connect virtually around shared interests and in support meetings and discussion groups. For example, during the coffee hour today, there will be a breakout meeting for people uh, interested in the Afghan refugee resettlement work here at West. If you wanna be part of that team, uh, please come to the coffee hour and uh, choose that breakout room. Um, tomorrow, the mindfulness group is meeting by Zoom at uh, 7.30 p.m. The Zoom link is available on the calendar on the West website. You can contact Ann Baker or Trish Weil for more information. We have several events this week for families with children and youth. First on Friday, September 10th, the orientation for the coming of age program for ninth and 10th graders and their parents will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. The next meeting after that will be Sunday, September 12th, after platform from 1 to 5 p.m. Please register in advance. The coming of age program is a family education program. At least one parent of each youth should plan to participate in the entire session. Uh, these two events are outdoor activities and masks will be required for both teens and parents. Please contact youth coordinator Linda Irizarry at 
Linda L. at ethicalsociety.org for more information about the Coming of Age program or other programs for middle and high school youth. On Saturday the 11th, the BSA Troop 1123 is holding an event for prospective scouts ages 11 to 17. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Linda I, not Linda L. Okay, I uh, misread whether that was a capital I or a lowercase L, Linda I. Thank you for correcting me on that, Lynn. Um, so it's L-I-N-D-A-I at EthicalSociety.org. Okay, uh, on Saturday the 11th, BSA Troop 1123 is holding an event for prospective scouts ages 11 to 17. Troop 1123 is an inclusive LGBTQ affirming group for scouts of all genders. For more information, contact Sonia Coopers at scoutmaster1123 at gmail.com. And next Sunday, the 12th, there will be a playground meetup from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. for families with children in preschool through second grade at WES. Siblings are welcome with the understanding that this event is centered on children ages three to seven. It's a family event, not a drop-off. Again, masks will be required for children and adults at this outdoor event. Contact SEEK coordinator Andara Miles at ndaram at ethicalsociety.org with any questions or to sign up. And one more announcement. Oh, you can find the details for these and all other events on our website calendar at uh, ethicalsociety.org. Uh, one more announcement that is not an event, but members, please look at look out uh, in your email in the next few days for a message from the Leader Search Committee. This will have the link to the Congregational Survey. That is the first step in the committee's effort to gather information and perspectives from everyone in our community. It will help inform the next steps, uh, the um, cottage meetings and focus groups that we'll be holding later in the fall. It will be an important part of the information that we provide to prospective senior leader candidates. So we are hoping that every member will fill out this survey. Please look for it in your email in the next few days. Finally, thank you for being here with us today. And we hope you'll join us again next Sunday. September 12th, when interim leader Lynn Cox will lead a platform called The Book of Life about a humanist frame for renewal in this season of the Jewish High Holidays. Now let's together enjoy together our closing song of the month, Everything Possible from, you guessed it, interim music coordinator Leah Morris. We have cleared off the table, the leftovers saved, washed the dishes and put them away. I have told you a story and tucked you in tight at the end of your knockabout day. As the moon sets its sails to carry you to sleep over the midnight sea. I will sing you a song no one sang to me, may it keep you good company. You can be anybody that you want to be, you can go whoever you will. You can travel any country that your wild heart leads, and know I will love you still. You can live by yourself, you can gather friends around, you can choose one special one. And the only measure of your words and your deeds will be the love you leave behind when you're done. Some girls grow up to be strong and bold. Some boys are race on ahead and some follow behind we all grow in our own space and time some women love women some men love men some race
raise children and some never do You can dream all the day, never reach in the end Everything possible for you You can be anybody that you want to be You can love whoever you will You can travel any country where your wild heart leaves And know I will love you still You can live by yourself You can gather friends around choose a few special ones and the only measure of your words and your deeds will be the love you leave behind when you're done don't be rattled by names by taunts by games seek out spirits kind and true if you give this old world the very best of yourself it will return the same to you you can be anybody that you want to be you can love whoever you will you can travel any country that your white heart leads and know i will love you still you can live Now I invite you to join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment, embracing possibility in our quest for a better world. Well, please join us for virtual coffee hour by pointing your browser to tiny.cc slash westcoffeehour. You can also find the link in the slide uh, which will be up shortly or in the chat. Uh, once we're in the Zoom coffee hour space, we'll divide into breakout groups. Uh, you're welcome to drift in and out of as you choose in order to greet different people. If you're new to our community, again, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceot, M-A-C-E-O-T, at ethicalsociety.org. Happy Labor Day and Labor Day weekend to everyone and have a great week. We'll look forward to seeing you again next Sunday, if not before. Take care.